reading from Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, which is on page 824 on the Pew Bibles. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a young a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers and sisters or father or mother or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire labourers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the labourers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the labourers and pay them 
their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired, about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired came first, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I, am I not allowed to do that or do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Well, that was a good long reading today in Matthew. Uh, and uh, it would certainly be nice to break those three uh, story units apart and, and zoom right in on each one, of course, one by one over a few weeks. Uh, on the other hand, though, they all kind of fit together, these three episodes. And so I thought perhaps uh, maybe we zoom out uh, across them all just to make sure that we catch the big picture that Jesus is trying to teach us here the idea being that you can then zoom in on each of those three-story units later in your own conversations and in your own devotions with that a big picture, I suppose, clear in mind. They do seem to be connected. Although there is one detail running through this text that seems a bit inconsistent, I must say, at least at first it does, because there's a bit of different language getting thrown around here as Jesus runs through all these things, and you might have picked up on that. Uh, the language, I suppose, about what we would call the goal, the purpose, the reason we would come to Jesus and follow Jesus, what his message is all about. Uh, look at the different ways that he lifts our eyes up to that goal uh, that we would come to him for. Uh, when the children are brought to him, verse 14, uh, Jesus then goes on to speak about the kingdom of heaven, he calls it. Uh, the rich young man in verse 16, though, uh, comes and asks Jesus about eternal life. Uh, but then uh, Jesus reflects on his question down in verse 23 as if it had actually been about the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is what he had spoken of with the children. But then repeating his point in verse 24, the very next verse, he suddenly calls it the kingdom of God. Um, speaking about the flip side in verse 29, I suppose, of those who do follow him, he goes back to the language of eternal life, which is what the rich young man had used. And then to set up his parable, chapter 20 and verse 1, he speaks in terms of the kingdom of heaven again. Um, all those kinds of words Jesus uses uh, for what he's teaching us here. Some people think that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, maybe he means something that's somehow different to when he talks about the kingdom of God. But if you read the Gospels attentively, uh, you'll see that Jesus just uses those terms as synonyms uh, all the time. And eternal life, of course, is a third way of saying the same thing. So much so that when you read the same stories in different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you'll see the different Gospel writers uh, use different terms around that to capture what Jesus said on the same occasion. 
Uh, for example, that first story today of the children coming to Jesus is also told by Ma uh, Mark and Luke, um, but they record Jesus as having then gone on to speak of the kingdom of God. Matthew in verse 14 has him speaking of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's because those terms mean the same thing. Uh, it's the same story, it's the same children, it's the same idea that Jesus is teaching. He just uses these different terms synonymously. Uh, we've already touched on that and the interchangeable language around this in, in earlier parts of our journey through Matthew, uh, and particularly, uh, FYI, when we were back in chapter 10, and if you want to dig into that, you can look up the podcasts for a sermon we called The Harvest and the Workers uh, from our series Jesus and the People. But chapter 10 was quite a while back, and so I thought it might just be good to flag that again today, and especially in this scripture we've just read, because here we see those terms uh, clarified again as synonyms uh, in the other kind of way, I suppose. The same gospel writer here, Matthew, the same gospel writer, captures Jesus using all three synonyms in this rolling teaching as he unpacks the same idea, which is a, a good way of reminding us and probably a timely reminder for us too that there's only one thing that we are looking forward to under Jesus. Uh, whether you want to think of that as heaven or eternal life or, or the kingdom of God, Jesus uses all these different terms to speak uh, about the one and the same thing. There is one gospel hope in front of all of us who follow him, and he always means to lift our eyes onto that one thing. Uh, the disciples give us a fourth way of capturing this same one gospel hope in, in verse 25 of our text, when they heard what he'd said about the rich young man, they were greatly astonished and they said, who then can be saved? Who can be saved is the way they put it. Um, religion today is very much fixated on earthly and temporary uh, blessings, how to live long and prosper, how to be healthy, wealthy and wise. But the Christian gospel, the Christian hope, uh, the very message and promise of Jesus for those whom he calls uh, is not about things of this earthly life. It's about what will come after this earthly life has run its course. We need to be very clear on that and we need to keep coming and reminding ourselves on that if we're going to truly understand Jesus and his gospel, even just to understand these three stories that we've read through today. After this life, we will either spend an eternity with Jesus in paradise or we will spend an eternity without Jesus in what he describes as hell. And his gospel, therefore, is about being saved from the eternal hell and saved into the eternal paradise. Uh, no wonder Jesus uses so many different ways to try to fix our minds on that gospel. No wonder the people in this narrative uh, keep leaning in, so desperate to understand him and, and what he's saying. And we should ask with them, how do we find our way into such a great and, and eternal thing? We might ask with the, the young man here and the disciples in this scripture. How do we enter into such a great thing? Uh, these three accounts, first of all, tell us a few ways that we won't find our way into what Jesus is offering. 
Uh, one, his offer of heaven is, is not based on who we are or who we think we are. And the bringing of the children to him in the first episode gives us that. Two, uh, heaven won't be opened to us based on what we have uh, got or, or, or what we think we have got. And the account of the rich young man gives us that. And three, uh, heaven won't somehow be made more certain or more wonderful for us based on, on how much we have done or how long we might have been doing it. And Jesus' parable, as chapter 20 breaks in, gives us that. And on all these things, Jesus means to flip our thinking as to how we think we're going to receive heaven. As he lifts our eyes to that glorious gospel hope again, he wants to change the way that we think. And he captures that flip, wouldn't you say, with this key phrase that he, he repeats a couple of times here in verse 30 of chapter 19, uh, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And again in chapter 20, uh, verse 16, vice versa, so the last will be first, and the first last. Jesus wants to flip the way that we think about heaven. Uh, so let's scan through these three sections and see if he can somehow do that for us today in some way. From verse 13, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. And went away. Why would his disciples think that people shouldn't bring their children to Jesus? What do you reckon is going on there? Do, you, do, you, do they think that the children wouldn't understand Jesus and these things of heaven that he's speaking of all the time? Do they think the children wouldn't yet understand themselves, perhaps, and their need for Jesus? Uh, are they just not ready for this teaching of Jesus, not of sufficient age or, or learning or maybe life experience in their hearts and minds? Uh, are they not important enough to Jesus in the disciples' way of thinking? Could that be what it is? Do children not yet fully register with the disciples as Jesus' people? What could it be, do you think? And moreover, I guess, what are the disciples actually saying here about themselves? If kids can't come to Jesus, for whatever reason it might be, then, then what is it about the disciples that they can? And I wonder, uh, do we still think like this today? Do we hinder children from coming to Jesus? And if so... Why do we think in such a way? What's processing, and probably in our deep subconscious minds, what's going on to intuitively think that children shouldn't come to Jesus just the same as we should? Do we think we have something that, that the kids don't have in the eyes of Jesus? Something that somehow puts us in a position to receive his gospel, his promise of heaven? What is it that we think a person first has to be in order to come to Jesus. 
Whatever the issue is, whether it be understanding or self-awareness or age or ability to reflect or reason on things, whatever it is, Jesus definitely wants to flip our thinking on this question of coming to him in verse 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. There is something about children that would put us in a position to receive his gospel. There's something about little children that would put us in a posture to receive his heaven. Indeed, in Mark chapter 10 and Luke 18, we have the extra detail here that Jesus also said, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Talk about flipped thinking. Uh, Perhaps it's that children come knowing that they are but children. In a world where the grown-ups always seem to think they have everything figured out, uh, perhaps children can come dependently to Jesus in a way that actually would be quite hard for adults to do. Uh, Whatever it is, Jesus flips our thinking. There's something about children that we adults need to relearn to receive heaven. Maybe the grown-up in verse 16 can help key us in a bit more to Jesus. Uh, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Well, teacher, what what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. This guy thinks he has got it. And yet... uh, Maybe he senses that he doesn't got it. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's very interesting that Jesus would have this guy give up all of his possessions, don't you think? Uh, Clearly, then, to inherit eternal life has got absolutely nothing to do with what we have. In fact, uh, following Jesus but having nothing would be just perfect, he says here. Is that how we still think today? Or uh, deep down, would we sort of feel more confident of, or or more worthy of heaven if, if, you know, we had been blessed with more in this life? Do we think things like, you know, if only I had more, the more productive I could be for the kingdom? What we have can actually hinder us, Jesus explains here. He said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Instinctively, I suggest we might actually think the other way to Jesus on this. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, 
Who then can be saved? We subconsciously do think that those who have in our society are somehow better. If this guy, so rich, is going to have such a hard time entering heaven, what hope is there for the rest of us? But it doesn't work like that, is what Jesus is saying, when it comes to the kingdom of God. That has got no basis on how much we uh, think we might have in this life. In fact, those who have lost whatever they did have for Jesus will inherit the eternal life that the young man had been inquiring after as Jesus wraps all this up in verse 29. They will have it. And so he flips our thinking again. There seems to be more of a connection with what we don't have than what we do have when it comes to this great question of heaven. We need to be careful. We might have been conditioned to think a certain way, but when it comes to entering heaven, many who are first will be last, and the last first, says Jesus. And his parable about the labourers then illustrates another angle on that thought, that so too when it comes to what we have done for Jesus, that's not somehow going to open heaven to us even more. And, and there too, uh, those we might think would be last will be first, says Jesus, and vice versa. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire labourers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the labourers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one had hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the labourers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Jesus wants to flip this part of our thinking too about heaven. Intuitively, we think that the more we do towards heaven, the more likely we are to receive it and the more worthy we are of it. 
the laborers who have done so much work here for so long are grumbling about the outcome of this to the master of the house and that would seem right in our natural instinct. Why are they being paid the same as those who've done almost nothing? That complaint sounds right to our ears. And it might be about the things of this life. But that instinct is wrong when it comes to the question of heaven, Jesus says here. And so as I say, across these three units, Jesus gives us a few warnings here about how we won't find our way into this heaven of which he speaks. Our hope of heaven can't be based on who we are. It can't be based on what we have and it can't be based on what we have done or how long that we've been doing it. In short, uh, Jesus' offer of heaven isn't based on us. It isn't based on us. But in all of this, Jesus has also given us very clearly what this great hope is all based on and how, therefore, we will find our way into his promise of heaven. I think back quickly through these three episodes again and see it's all based on Jesus. It's all based upon Jesus. Look at what he says about the children again in verse 14. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' mind, to come to him is to receive the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty big statement by Jesus across the two parts of verse 14 there, the longer you sit and think it through, that he lines up those two things as synonyms, uh, and yet this is his gospel. Those who belong to heaven will come to him, and those who come to him belong to heaven. It isn't based on us. It's based on Jesus and whether we come to him. Look again what he says to the rich young man in verse 17 of that scripture. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And yet he then goes ahead and answers the man's question. Turns out it was the right call to ask Jesus about how to inherit eternal life. He's the one who can answer this for us. Again, verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. The man goes away sad, yes, because he has many possessions, but there's the answer to his question. Following Jesus is what will perfect this man on his quest for heaven. And, and Jesus has set that up so, so nicely with giving him earlier in verse 18 the, the horizontal commandments, so to speak, how we uh, live right with one another in this life. But he had been silent at that part on the vertical commandments about how we must faithfully follow God. Come to me. He now says, follow me. This would perfect the man's pursuit of the commandments and his quest for heaven. It isn't based on what we have going for us. It's based on Jesus, coming and following Jesus. 
Look again at what he says to the disciples, verse 28, about all this. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, see the gravity with which Jesus speaks of himself in regard to this kingdom of heaven? In the new world, if you want a fifth way of saying all of this that he speaks about, it all hinges on him. He is the one seated on the throne of glory, determining who will and who will not receive. And he says, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It all hinges on Jesus. Look again at his parable in chapter 20. If it isn't based on what we have done, then what is it based on? It's based on the master of the house, chapter 20 and verse 1. It's based on the master of the house who went out and hired all of these people and brought them into his vineyard, who chooses, verse 14, to grant the fullness of heaven to all whom he chooses to give it to, who owns all of that fullness of heaven, verse 15, and is generous with it beyond what we can even believe. It all rests upon the abundant grace of our Lord Jesus. Jesus has written himself into these three episodes as the answer to our deepest possible question. How can we receive the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the eternal life of which he speaks? How can we be saved? And not on any basis of us, and only on the basis of Jesus. Which is a very, very big call from Jesus. Uh, He wants us uh, to put all of our hopes, uh, invest all of it on this question in him. And yet this is his gospel through and through and through. He is our only way into heaven. Check once more this Q&A in verse 25 with the disciples. Verse 25 of chapter 19. When the disciples heard this, what he said about the rich young man, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? I mean, that's the question right there, isn't it? Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I wonder if there's not a little smile on Jesus' face as he says those words. Only with God is heaven even possible for you. So come and follow me.
And Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Just what I'm offering, says Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, eternal life. Call it what you will and follow me and it is yours. Because this is possible with me. I think the reason we have to be taught these three things here is that we instinctively do think contrary to Jesus on the question of heaven. Religious instinct gets in our way. Religious instinct has us think that we have to earn our way into heaven. We have to be worthy of heaven. Jesus says no and no way. You just cannot do that, he says. No matter who you are, nor what you have to offer, nor how much you might have done. The only way into heaven, friends, is by the grace of Jesus who simply calls us to let go all of those other things that we might be hoping in and follow him. And he will be pleased to give us heaven. Such is our gracious God. Uh, That is the gospel. Uh, Where does that other religious instinct come from that's deep inside us all, that that we must find our own way to heaven? Where does that come from? We might look to our culture, I suppose, and our conditioning and so on, but actually it just plumb goes right the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where sin first entered humanity and put inside us what? The desire to uh, do and be all things outside and separate from God, autonomously, to and for ourself. And that sin touches all of our lives and it touches all of our life. And uh, yes, of course, it would also touch our thoughts on this biggest question of all, of heaven. There's a complete flip between that sinful instinct in us and Jesus' gospel claim. Because to come into heaven depends entirely upon whether we have come unto Jesus and nothing more. Which is awfully confronting and challenging for our hearts and our minds if we, if we happen to think you know, that, that we are someone or we have something, or have done something to deserve heaven on our own score. His gospel humbles us by stripping us of us. We must put aside all those self-hopes, he says, as false hopes, and but come unto him. We must be given the kingdom by this gracious king, knowing full well that we don't deserve it and that it's impossible for us to try to self-achieve it. What a humbling gospel this is. If we come at his gospel all heavily armoured, thinking, oh, look at me and what I have got, well, this gospel is going to break us down. But at the same time, of course, that makes Jesus' gospel so very exciting, doesn't it? And, and, and inviting for those of us who don't feel up to score in and of ourselves. So read these stories. The children, the poor, the long-neglected people in the marketplace are all uplifted by Jesus' words here. So I guess we say the nobodies, 
those who don't have anything to offer, those who haven't had the chance to do anything much for Jesus, build up any kind of self-worth. They are the ones who can be lifted high to rejoice in Jesus' promise and free gift of heaven. What a joyful gospel this is. If we come at this gospel bruised and wounded and broken, it is going to be like medicine for our souls. Hear the gospel of Jesus then in Matthew today and and I guess be humbled by it and rejoice. Despite every other instinct, our receiving the gospel and the kingdom of God doesn't rest upon us. Other than that, we just come under Jesus to which we might then just surrender and give thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture and we thank you for the clarity that you give here on these things and on something, of course, that is so, so important. Uh, But it's challenging, uh, this teaching, and it goes against our grain. So help us put aside our our sinful uh, instincts, our sinful human pride, and and just surrender to Jesus' call. Uh, Thank you for this gospel that does open heaven to us if we will but receive it from our Lord. Uh, Thank you that we don't need to be or have or or do to receive this gift of eternal life, but just come to you. Uh, Because truth be told, we are not and have not and did not what you otherwise could have required, but for your grace. Uh, Flip our hearts in their thinking around this question of salvation and draw us into your word, your promises that we read here today. Help us come to you as if we are children, therefore, as if we are poor, as if we are unemployed, and to then just receive and and then just serve you with humbled hearts full of thanks and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.